0: Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I am your host, Ian Andrews, joined by my wife and my sister, Emily and Megan, respectively. How are you guys doing today?
1: Pretty good. Pretty good. Great. It's a little chilly
0: here in my home. It is chilly. A little sniffly.
1: We have been waking up, and it has been freezing in our house, and it remains freezing all day. Even though it gets up to like 77 degrees during the daytime, it's freezing in our house all day because it like i don't know it like holds all the cool air from the nighttime yeah yeah
2: my house does that too
1: so anyway this morning i like i <laughs> basically had a small temper tantrum and it was like yeah i
2: mm-hmm. have had enough
1: <laughs> and, like, Made Ian turn on the heat so now our furnace is on but like don't you guys feel like it's a competition every year Oh, that yeah. like people are like, no, <laughs> I haven't turned on my heat yet. Or like,
2: yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like the day before
1: Christmas, and they're like, well, I just turned on my heat. The you know? day before <laughs>
2: Christmas, and you look like, at <laughs> i like, you've been miserable for months, and you chose this.
1: <laughs> so yeah. I we work from home, and we are always always in our home. So I, you know, yeah. it's a little extra money on the bill, but the happiness is worth it. <laughs>
2: I had a college professor who had class at her home one time and we were supposed to like It was like a tea party at her house, which was glorious. I mean, I'm not going to complain. It was awesome. But she was one of those who wants to see how far she can go. And it was the dead of January. And it was about 50 degrees inside her house. And she had, I mean, you could hardly see her. There were so many layers. Her tiny little face peeking out from a pile of blankets and, you know, 16 pairs of socks. She was holding her teacup and said, welcome, welcome. The tea is freezing before it ever reaches your mouth. The whole house was like an icebox.
1: <laughs> it must be. I don't ah, know. Then. It's like a northern regions thing.
2: It must be. Well, I couldn't do it. I cry, Uncle, very early. My heat is already on.
0: <laughs> well, so is ours now, and I can literally feel the room becoming more hospitable and livable it's by the so moment.
1: So much better already. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, with that, I suppose let's jump into a very appropriate section of the novel where wow. we we find <laughs> we find Fontaine in winter. And it's going to be brutal. What a so transition! Brace yourselves. That's dark. Yeah, it's very dark. It's very dark.
2: We all have our incisor teeth, though, still, so it's okay.
0: Oh, <laughs> that was rough. I know the whole thing was rough. Although it continues to be long passages of philosophical meditation and then really quick hitting plot moments. I mean, yeah. he didn't seem to dwell much, frankly, on the pulling of Fontaine's teeth, for example, mm-hmm. in a way that the the films kind of do. And maybe that's just a, the, a difference between the mediums. But anyways, our, our section for the day opens in book five. Book five is called The Descent for some obvious reasons.
2: Subtlety. Not one of his
1: things.
0: No, no, no. not Not so much subtle.
1: It's interesting, though, because it is the obviously it's the fall of Fantine deeper and deeper. But it doesn't end like at the very, very bottom. She finds not like. Blackness or darkness—I don't know. Just the shape of it isn't necessarily what I would call a complete descent. You know, mm. she does seem to rise in a way at the end, sort of. Yeah, but but that's like maybe a philosophical discussion about what a descent is. Huh? Mm.
2: That's very Dantean of you. <laughs> All about yeah. inversion—going down is going up, something like that. Let's get into it. Something <laughs> like that. <laughs> let's get.
0: Mm, let's get into it. So Hugo starts by saying, here's a history of the improvement of making jet beads. <laughs>
2: Did I, all of my Tolstoy alarms went off in reading, in reading that title? I was like, no, oh, no,
0: no. we're going to get a lot of that. I understand. Eventually, there's, it's going to be about sewers, the sewer system of Paris. So, so settle in for that sort of thing. But really what this is, is an encapsulation of Jean Valjean remaking his life. Now, this could be called a spoiler, except it's not a spoiler. As we said, subtlety is not so much Victor Hugo's bag. Right, Emily?
1: Well, and he does, for those who are following along, he does reveal that at the end of our section for today. So it's kind of a mystery at the beginning who Monsieur Madeleine is, but not so much at the end. And, you know, not so much throughout. He's pretty, pretty much on his hand.
2: (laughs) He's shown his hand because of, and maybe this is just the way that I read it, but because of how similar his actions are to that big, long passage on the Bishop of Mm -hmm, Dignan at the beginning. Right, The things that he chooses to do, his interests, the way that he spends his money, his heart for the poor, all of that seems to be directly patterned after this previous character. And the fact that we also hear he came into town, no one knew where he came from, and they didn't ask for his papers, seems to be kind of, you know, full sent. Yeah. Suspicious.
0: Well, and he the reason that no one asks for his papers is that he comes into town on an evening where there has been a house fire and recklessly endangers his own life to save two children who just happen to be the children of the current police chief in the town. (laughs) So that sort of gets him off scot-free. He's clearly a good person, having done this this, you know, selfless act. And so he's in from that point on.
2: There's a flavor of Providence about that, that it just so happens to be, you know, the captain of the guard or whatever, who's who's now on Jean Valjean's side. Now he's right. safe from the law for a while, you know?
0: That's super interesting that Providence can be in something like a house fire. That might be important for the rest of the novel as well. Oh yeah. I had a thought while I was reading this, though, because he opens we have to get to a place knowing the the whole scope of the story, right? I haven't read this before, but we we're all aware of various adaptations. He's got to be rich, important detail because more or less he has to be able to live a life where he doesn't really worry about money so much in order to be the Valjean that we are going to meet here in a couple of chapters on the run from the law, et cetera, et cetera. And so, what hugo bakes in is he actually had a brilliant idea that revolutionized trade in the country of france mm-hmm. right
1: i kind of took it as a comment on we've talked a couple times about how the opening the preface to the novel says something like ignorance is is one of the evils of the century and once jean valjean is free from the oppression of society he can think his, his mind has been freed and right. it says thus we have three results from one idea right he he improves the economy he improves the lives of workers and and it's a gain for the manufacturer so much good comes out of his ability to think freely without the oppression of you know his jailers whatever mm-hmm. he can fully rise to his his true potential right and he
0: spends a lot of time reading too in order to aid this process right? I mean, basically his only comforts are giving away his vast wealth and reading books.
1: Yeah. Hugo isn't subtle about that either no. because no, he, no. Madeline likes reading books and Javert hates reading books, but does so anyway. Like, There's clearly like an underlying thread of conversation about education and such things. Well,
0: and he continues his meditation on justice from the early stages of the book. Remember, he, he talks about law and basically paints it as an impersonal killing force that is as rather than benefiting the society is keeping the oppressed down and maintaining the position of the, the rich and uncaring and all of that. I mean, the Bishop of Dean's whole perspective on life is grace and mercy over justice, right? God is more than just. And so in this portrayal of Javert, we get a man who is defined by his dedication to the law, to justice. And as a result is described as an animal. Did you guys notice that he's described as an animal, a wolf,
1: but then also there's a comparison there as well. I think there's, I mean, obviously there's supposed to be literary foils, right? A comparison between Jean Valjean and Javert, but the, we're told actually that Madeline slash Valjean had almost memorized the natural law. Mm -hmm. So they're both dedicated to law in some ways. I would be interested how you guys would differentiate those two different kinds of dedication to the law. Yeah,
0: I, I have an idea about that, but Megan, you look like you have something to say. Go ahead.
2: Well, I had a couple of somethings, but we're we're flying we're flying <laughs> past them. So I maybe we're not to the point where we're diving deep yet. We're we're given an overview. Here are all the big ideas we're gonna be talking about. Well, we'll I just want to kind of let deep. this
0: conversation, you know fly as we see fit. So whatever you think of to say, go ahead.
2: Okay. Well, then I have to back us up because when you were talking about um, Jean Valjean having an education now because of his wealth and because of the ability to read books, I was actually put in mind of him being freed up to use what education he had from experience as a poor person. Mm -hmm. That's something that's being set free, also.
0: Yeah, when he
2: finally, when he has enough money to not think about that anymore, now he's sharing his experience as a peasant with how to make, you know, how to make your farm successful. And he's actually all of his innate abilities, regardless of his station and his education, are also being freed in this in this chapter, which I think was inspiring. So it's not like a formal education. Yeah,
1: his even as a lower class member of society, he has something valuable to contribute. Yeah. And well, it's and one honored.
0: It, yeah. That's a good way mm-hmm. to put that. One of the things you can hear Hugo meditating on is the idea that he gave us initially that there aren't, there are no bad men. There are just bad situations. Mm-hmm. That might be an overstatement of his idea, but he's definitely messing around with that notion. And so we see, now that Valjean has been freed from the overwhelming crushing weight of a society that's decided to dismiss him, his, his natural state is coming forward, which is right. to contemplate and to give and to love and to forgive and all of that.
2: Which I think maybe ties into that conversation about the natural law that he's almost memorized. This emphasis on something being innate and born to you as a human being and part of the natural way of things. Even his natural analogies that he uses from his his time as a peasant are, they have something to say about humanity. I'm thinking of that moment when he's talking about the nettle and how they can use Mm -hmm. all the parts of the nettle, which is a noxious weed to help the animals and also maybe be food. I can't remember what he said they would use it for. But he says, if we took a little time, the nettle would be useful. We neglect it and it becomes harmful. Then we kill it. Men are so like the nettle. Mm. That Mm. seems to be his takeaway from the natural order. If we watch the way that things are in the natural world, then compassion and grace and cultivating the good, even in a, in a disgusting thing, should be our takeaway. And Javert does not agree with that. So maybe that's leading us towards a conversation about justice.
0: Yeah, I think so too. It, to comparing these two characters, to me, um, obviously has to be done with their position toward the law. And it occurs to me that you're right. Valjean does think about the law. He has memorized the natural mm-hmm. law. But he's free in a way that Javert isn't because the law has already condemned him and he's already been found forgiven, Hmm. right?
2: He knows the need for someone to take a little time with him as a nettle in society. Exactly, exactly.
0: Whereas Javert actually conceives of himself as just. He's just. He's on the right side of the law, which, as it turns out, is an unbearable weight.
1: Well, and to continue Megan's comparison with the natural order, strikes me that while Valjean looks to organic things about him, Javert places his hope in what's artificial. His vision of the law is based in societal structures and their aristocracy. And he he looks at that one aristocrat and says, well, he owns the nicest house in town. So clearly he must be good. So he isn't actually, it's not the natural law per se that Javert is dedicated to, but something that's been constructed or manufactured.
2: Yeah. Hugo says that he bases his identity on a powerful foundation of rectitude, order, and honesty, but even that a foundation, like an edifice, like he's built something
1: Mm-hmm.
2: with mm-hmm. his own hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And speaking, speaking oh, of Javert.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's true. And the more I, the more I chew on it, I mean, the opening line that we're given after the description of the wolf, right? That, so the legend is that there's a, wolf wolf mother kills one of her <laughs> one of her brood every time she has pups because one of them has this, this feral desire to kill all of its brothers and sisters. And that that wolf, that one wolf that should have been killed at birth is Javert. Whew. A, a, a touch on the nose. But it's because he was born in prison, right? So we have Valjean, who was born free, if poor, and spent his adolescence selflessly caring for his sister and her children until misfortune strikes. And then he ends up you know, on the prison barges forever and all of that. We have Javert on the other hand, who was born into prison through no fault of his own. Mm-hmm. And so he's not only just with regard to the law, but also sees himself as rising up from circumstances that were not his fault, that were none of his, his, his own doing. So there's a little bit of of injustice present in Javert's background too.
1: And that's just symbolically significant, right? Born into slavery, born into bondage, as opposed to born free. That right. has biblical connotations. Absolutely. It just, isn't there a section where Hugo as narrator kind of steps back and says, some people from some literary schools might look at Javert as like a symbol. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't say. <laughs>
2: How can, I'm just trying to reconcile the idea of Javert like that wolf pup who's going to devour his siblings with this line. Some police officers have a peculiar expression combining an air of meanness with an air of authority. Javert had this without the meanness. Hmm. Does mean, what instance of the word mean are we using here? Mean as in low class? Or mean as in that's cool. sort of
0: what I—that's how I took it—was the low, the low class, the averageness of it.
1: Or is it the pettiness? Because he does end up turning himself in when he breaks his own law, which is the end mm. of our section. So I wonder okay. if it has to do with some people would carry their authority with desire to place themselves above everyone else, and his is actually dedication to his vision of justice, and he's willing to have that govern over himself as well as over everyone else. I like that. That's better than
2: what I was thinking. That's better. Yeah. Yeah, it was just rankling. I needed a moment.
1: (laughs) He's not,
0: though. I don't know, man. Hugo does seem to be telegraphing his point just a hair. I mean, this man was a compound of two sentiments, simple and good in themselves, but he made them almost evil by his exaggeration of them. Respect for authority and hatred of rebellion. So he's unfeeling. I mean, he's, he's the human embodiment of the legal code of his era, more or less.
2: Yeah. Yep, I think that's exactly right. I loved this line a little further down that same passage you were reading, Ian. His conscience was bound up in his usefulness, his religion in his duties, and he was a spy as others are priests. I, that, is, that idea of him being a spy comes up again at the end of our section, and he's actually – he's saying it in a confessional kind of way, like take me to task for this. I've been looking out to, to attack my brother basically. And Mm. I slandered you in the process and the law judges me too. That absoluteness in his character, I think is going to be crucial to our understanding of his motivation.
0: Oh yeah, certainly. And I think again, it's not particularly subtle. I don't know that that bothers me really, but it just isn't, it just isn't very subtle. I mean, you've got Valjean on the one hand, he who has been, Forgiven much knows how to forgive, and we've got Javert on the other, the inflexible standard.
1: I will say this though: I think that right now in this section, as Madeline, not I mean, and also Valjean, but like more particularly, he's Madeline is standing in as kind of like the merciful figure, but it's not a complete portrait of Valjean because I think actually. Valjean shares some of the basic assumptions that Javert and Fantine, which we'll get to, have about their position towards the law, and he's not functioning for other people. He's functioning as more than just, but maybe towards himself, not so much. And that's that's something that was seeded early on, and we're gonna see that grow. But I think there's an assumption that one. Let's see, what would it be that. That one must uh, use the, the just, the, the code of law, in order to rectify oneself. Even, even though like people are looking for mercy and kindness, they keep turning to what is just in order to try to wrench that from it. Like they're expecting that if they just do it right, I don't know, I don't, I'm trying to so articulate that. Do you see that, that in,
2: in Madeline here as well?
1: Not so much in this section, but I do Ian was saying that it's pretty straightforward, and in this section, I think it is, but I do think there's that aspect of his character that that the conversation that's taking place here mm. is seeding the pot for an aspect of Valjean's character that's going to come to light that- and unfold over the course of the story,
0: yeah, maybe so, and i in maybe that pokes it set up a little bit in the fact that he refuses all honors and distinctions multiple times before he finally mm. accepts his post as the mayor of the town. That's
1: a good example. Yeah.
0: It's interesting to me how Hugo has a conversation about the way that, that all the people in the town look at him. And on the one hand, they are showering him with honors and recommending him as mayor and giving him medals and things like that. On the other hand, they're all constantly trying to make sense of his motivations, assuming that they're dark ones, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, he must be, he must be greedy. He's looking to make a lot of money. And then when he gives all of the money away, they're like, oh, well, then he must be ambitious, right? Because it's inconceivable that a man would act the way he is acting from pure motives. There's no way that's true. And eventually everyone is forced to acknowledge because of his actions that he is, that he is good and, that, and everybody loves him for it, but it takes a minute. So that's interesting.
2: Hmm. Interesting that it turns on a woman saying to him, a good mayor is a good thing. Are you afraid of the good you might do? The concept mm-hmm. is clear, but the use of the word good three times in two sentences I think is intentional. Mm-hmm. Good, right, righteous. Are you Are you good? Is this part of your qualification according to the law? He sh- He shies away from that title. And he's called to task for it because his position allows him to be used to bless people. And he wants to do that. But – The title doesn't fit.
0: Hmm. Not from his perspective, anyway.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That he's so fixated on his guilty past, maybe. Well, yeah, he's
0: preoccupied. That's the other thing that we're told over and over again. He's preoccupied. He's preoccupied.
2: Which makes that scene where there's, you know, the man is pinned under his cart. Fauchelevent is pinned under his cart. And Javert is standing there and he says, There's only one man who I know could lift this cart. And there's an unspoken conversation between them. It's, if you do this, I'll know who you are, is kind of wh- how I read it. And Jean Valjean is terrified, and he does it anyway, but he's, he's admitting that he's a conflict. He's admitting his, his seedy past that he's always thinking about. Which is so,
0: it's a great literary device, but what? Javier, are we supposed to think that you have met all of the men in school? <laughs> <laughs> and I know. you know for sure that only one man in the entire country could possibly lift a load this big. This is ridiculous.
2: I know. I see that. It is a hyperbolic, exaggerated, romantic kind of scene. But at the same time, if Javert was already suspicious of Father Madeleine, then this kind of confirms a suspicion rather than of all the men in the world, you, a total stranger who I don't recognize from anywhere, must be this other guy
1: right i mean it's a powerful scene there's a reason all the adaptations include it but i was struck by the fact that in all the adaptations i've seen it's like valjean lifts the cart and then javert recognizes but Mm -hmm. in the book the recognition happens beforehand and valjean does it knowing that the consequence is going to be that javert knows yeah that's true oh
2: man this is fun. I didn't notice this while I was reading, but if that's true, then this perspective of the community as Father Madeleine as uh, a representation of the good Lord comes directly in conflict with his humanity and the thing he's afraid of and his guilty past. Those two things come into tension at the end of the, the chapter, chapter six. The old man kisses his knees and calls him the good Lord. Yeah. Madeleine hmm. himself looks at Javert with a tranquil air of suffering. Beautiful
1: yeah, it is that's
2: a tight scene yeah yeah, that's what I,
1: that's what I was rambling towards earlier, I think that that the people have their eyes on Madeline, but Madeline has his eyes on Javert.
2: yeah right? on,
1: the on the law. law.
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah, so I, so the people are, are our link to the next section because we get introduced to Fontine and get an update, pretty, pretty dark update on her life at times. and he starts by meditating on the fact that a community full of people are constantly watching and evaluating and feeding their desire for gossip. And Fontine is one of the people they're looking at. And it's interesting to me to note that she's very similar to Valjean in this way. She's doing something essentially noble by trying to provide for her daughter. She's exulting in, in supporting herself by working hard. And she's finally found a job and everything is going just swimmingly. And what is going to tear her down is literally public opinion. That's actually what's going to destroy her life. And the way he frames it is this. Some people are malicious from the mere necessity of talking. Their conversation, chatter in the drawing room, gossip in the antechamber is like those fireplaces that rapidly burn up wood. They need a great deal of fuel. The fuel is their neighbor. So fontaine was watched.
1: They actually, Ego uses the same word to describe them, pure instinct. Let's see, page 177. And often when these secrets are made known, these mysteries published, these enigmas brought into the light of day. They lead to catastrophes, duels, failures, the ruin of families, and make lives miserable to the great joy of those who have discovered all without any ulterior motive from pure instinct. That's the same language he used to describe Javert in his his digging into justice. Mm. And the connection
2: to... To a beast, right? This is the part of you that's beast-like and animalistic rather than what makes you most human.
0: So we, uh, we we don't need to dwell on it really because he's a chap of one idea through the Fontaine section, but it starts with her losing her job to a busybody, right? Who says she's got a child somewhere and she's unmarried and, and society does frowns on such things. And so, so we're going to get her fired. So she gets fired and she starts sewing for the soldiers, making them coarse shirts, as he puts it. And so she has, she does the course shirts thing for a little while, um, she does but then the, the 10 RDAs <laughs> start amping up their requests for cash because as far as they're concerned, she's a cash cow and her job is to
1: oh,
0: pay them whatever they want. So as the demands for money get steeper and steeper, she's driven to do things like, first of all, sell her hair. So there is one aspect of her personal identity that's taken away. And then eventually her teeth.
1: There's another aspect of her identity that's taken away. Who has stress dreams about losing their teeth? I hated that scene. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, I hated the whole thing too. It's brutal. And finally, the last thing that she is driven to do is prostitute herself for extra money. Through all of this, however, she blames Father Madeline.
2: Yeah. And, I just found a little passage I was looking for. She blames Father Madeleine through all of this more and more, the more her suffering increases. And that's described as something of the wild beast developing in her. So she becomes obsessed with how she doesn't deserve this that has happened to her. Justice, again, turned on its head. And she's she's she is truly victimized, but that's what she thinks of. And she puts the blame on Father Madeleine and kind of lives for that feeling of indignance, I guess, for lack of a better word.
1: That's a change, though, from her first response when she's first thrown out. It says the mayor had given her 50 francs because he was kind Mm -hmm. and he had sent her away because he was just. She had bowed to that decree. Mm. So her first response is to say, this is right. You're right to throw me out. It's wrong that I had a child. You're just doing the best you can. And then she gets bitter and starts blaming him. But I think it's interesting that it's bookended between two scenes in which she, it seems like she's covering over the fact that actually she blames herself.
2: Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I like that too.
0: Well, he goes to, he goes to preaching in <laughs> sub, subdivision, subdivision 11, Christus nos
1: liberavit. It actually, I think that that actually helps It does. how difficult these scenes are. It does. Then he just goes to preaching the gospel. It's he just great. goes to preaching, man.
0: He says, "What is this story of Fontine about? It's about society buying a slave from whom? From misery, from hunger, from cold, from loneliness, from desertion, from privation, melancholy barter—a soul for a piece of bread. Misery makes the offer; society accepts. The holy law of Jesus Christ governs our civilization, but it does not yet permeate it." They say that slavery has disappeared from European civilization. That is incorrect. It still exists, but now it weighs only on women, and it is called prostitution. Oof.
1: But then at the end, he says, Alas, what are all these destinies driven helter-skelter? Where do they go? Why are they all what they are? He who (laughs) knows that sees all darkness. He is alone. His name is God. It's very encouraging.
2: It is encouraging because... We all stand with the author in his in his questions, right? What are these destinies? Where do these people go? Why are they what they are? How could something like this happen to Fontine? We're with her. Like this is horrifying. How could this happen? And what what Hugo offers us is there's only one being who could offer an explanation. And it's God, but what he sees is darkness. He's in the darkness with you, which brings mm-hmm. me back to what you were saying about the name of the chapter, Descent. Yep. If God really is in the darkness, then maybe she's not as alone as we see. Yep. That's what I was thinking.
1: Yep. When you get all the way down to the bottom, you don't find, I don't know, whatever you were expecting to find. It doesn't continue on forever. You actually do come up against God, according to yep. Hugo. That's, that's where we go next which is the, the direction of our chapter.
0: So our next chapter, the idleness of M. Bama to boss. Bama I think what I've decided to do is spend the rest of this novel aggressively Americanizing every name. I just think it's so much better when you do it that way. The idleness of M. Bama de
2: Yeah. I do think that word's fun to say if you say it right, though. Bama to Bama yeah, Monsieur Bamatabois.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a t- it's a silly name for a silly man, but he is sort of the bottom of the pit, <laughs> right? And if we're to take the juxtaposition of this chapter with the previous line, he is alone. His name is God. He is God, right? He's the activity of the divine grabbing Fontine at her lowest and hmm. and drawing her upwards. Which is a weird. It's a weird thing to to have to think about the presence of suffering as providence. But we've been, we've been orbiting it. There have been moments that we've pointed to that say just that. And I think this is another one. On the one hand, it is a, a scurrilous injustice, what goes on with Fontaine in this chapter. On the other hand, it is the reason she's brought to Père Madeleine's attention. And the result of it is that she's cared for finally. Right?
1: Hmm. Yeah. 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 But that whole scene is super interesting when she's taken in by Javert and- Monsieur Madeleine hears how he was involved in in her story and says she must go free. She is unwilling to hear that from him because she hates him so much. She's so bitter at what he did that she turns back to Javert and tries to get her mercy from him on her own terms or on the terms of what she perceives as the law. She says to Madeleine, you came here to scare me, but I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of Monsieur Javert. I'm afraid of my good Monsieur Javert. And she says, uh, now you see, Monsieur Inspector, you have to be just. I know you're just, Monsieur Inspector. In fact, it's all very simple. A man. Well, she goes on, you don't need yeah. to read this whole thing. But she basically says, I know that I deserve what you've done to me. But look, look at the this, this situation that I'm in. Right. You have to be just to my child. I understand that you have to be just to me. But but really what justice is would be letting me go take care of my child, even though I deserve everything that you're doing to me. I
2: don't know. It's just she a very- She tries to have it both ways. Yeah. She tries to say, I agree with you. I am in the wrong. And also, I'm not in the wrong. How dare you? She tries to say both of those things. Meanwhile, mercy is standing in the corner. And what mercy would require is a real relinquishing mm-hmm. of all of her all of her words well, about
0: this. Well, what it is is a relinquishing of her intentions. The line that stuck out to me was, you see, I never meant to do wrong, Truly. Monsieur Javert, and everywhere I see women much worse than me who are much more fortunate.
1: It's relinquishing of her right to judge her yeah. own situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
2: You guys, what did you think? Just as we're as we're going by it, what did you think of the line? Um, she would have softened a heart of granite, but you cannot soften a heart of wood. Yeah, I know.
1: I was trying to because because the scripture is, "I've replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh," right? Hmm.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and this—that line comes up in conjunction with her grief, making her beautiful again. So, have compassion for the suffering and let it call out the humanity in you. How is how is wood better than granite? Neither of those are a human heart. Still. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what that image is
1: supposed to to be doing.
0: I wonder if it's idiomatic. If it doesn't translate into English very well. Those French with their idioms. Those Frenchmen <laughs> in their idioms.
1: <laughs>
2: well, something French in there with the wood. I don't know.
0: But this, so what all okay. this leads to, I mean, we're concerned for Fantine, right? But what this really does is set up the first of what I anticipate will be many conversations between Javert and, and Valjean on the topic of justice and mercy, right? Hugo has been having this conversation with himself at the reader for some time now, but, <laughs> but here, here goes Javert and Valjean attempting to actually communicate with one another on Your this topic. Your impatience is showing. What'd you say? Oh, my impatience <laughs> Your is showing. impatience is showing. Well, I just think it's interesting when he goes to clothing these, these ideas in flesh, right? That's the whole yeah. purpose of a work of literature is to incarnate an idea by making it a person. And, and so we have justice in Javert, who cannot possibly understand why the mayor would let Fontine off the hook. And he takes it as a personal affront. Mm-hmm. He more or less says, hang on just a second. If you show mercy, then the foundations of my whole life are shaken and challenged.
2: Yeah,
0: And I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. I beg Monsieur Le Maire's pardon. The insult does not belong to him, but to justice.
2: Mm-hmm. And Valjean
0: responds, the highest justice is conscience. What do we think about that? Is that true? Well, I'm
2: not entirely sure what that means. I I can see where he's leading us to. Conscience, the purpose of the law is to convict the individual heart of the man looking at the law. So, you, you know, a little bit, who are you to throw the first stone? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of that.
0: What about the distinction, though, between the laws of man and the natural law? I mean, it occurs to me that one of the things he's doing, he, he's not saying laws are bad. He never says that. What he's saying is society's laws are unfeeling and untempered with mercy and kindness. They're rigid. But the natural law, which is where we would get the conscience, is something that comes from God. And it's inscrutable, certainly, because God is inscrutable. You can It has nuance and subtlety. You can't screw him. You can't screw God. Um it's inscrutable, but it does, like you said, have nuance. It has it's tempered with mercy. There's kindness in it. I wonder if that's the real conflict here, not between law and not law, but instead between natural law and human law.
2: And yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I also like what you said in passing about Javert being concerned with this because it would throw it would throw all of his beliefs out the window. He'd have to start over with the way that he is living his life. Emily, you drew a connection between Fantine's response to Monsieur Le Maire and Javert's response. And on the very next page after, Javert says, this is an offense of justice. Fantine turns to Monsieur Madeleine, who's leading her out into freedom. And and she says, uh, had she been deceived, would she have to change all her beliefs? Had she been deceived about who she should trust and rely on and throw herself towards? And would she have to change all her beliefs? Which is, I think the answer it's a mirror yes.
0: image of what happens to Valjean with the Bishop of Dean. Mm. Mm. Right? There's a, there's a line very yeah. similar to that, where he realizes this, this mercy that's just been showed to me changes everything. If I let it, my options are to turn away from it or to turn towards it.
2: That reminds me of, I'll have to go now. What, what the Bishop of Dean says is, go now and live in, as an honest man. And he takes that up as the the cry of his life. And he says, you can work in the place that I've created for you to work. The women can work over here. The men can work over here. All that I ask is that you be an honest person. Yep. And maybe it all comes down to honesty. At which point, what does he mean by that? Telling the truth about yourself? Telling the truth about how you stand in relation to the law? In that sense,
1: Valjean is not entirely being honest. I, if He's taken honesty to mean virtue, it sounds like you're saying. Right. Whereas... You know, he's lying about his name, who he is. Yes. So
0: on the other hand, I do think it's interesting that his lie is one of omission because he actually is named by the people in the town. And all of the honors are things that he doesn't struggle to achieve, but are are given to him and, and forced on him at the end of the day. Right. So I don't know. That's interesting.
1: Is it still a lie? Maybe. Well, I just, I think maybe by the end of our section for today, it does kind of come to the surface. You know, as Jabir comes to him and says, I'm so sorry that I sent off this report to Paris about you. I told them that you were Jean Valjean. I see now that I'm wrong. We found this other man. who's going by the name Jean-Matthew. I don't know how you say that. But, uh. Basically, Valjean just stands there and asks him questions about it, but doesn't ever, you know, volunteer. The the lie of omission begins to take on some serious consequences at this point. Hmm. But uh, to go back to the conversation about Javert and his idea, having to relinquish your beliefs, I wonder if that's why in that conversation that I'm referring to at the end, he says, Monsieur Mayor, I come to ask you to be so kind as to make charges and procure my dismissal. Mm. That the kind thing to do for Javert would be to be cruel or to be harsh towards him, exacting in the face of the law, and that it would be unkind to him to forgive
2: him. Because he would have to throw his, his ideas about reality up in the air. Yeah, it would ruin You'd everything to start over. he's built his life on. He says
1: at one point, Good God, it is easy to be kind. The difficulty is to be just. Right. That it's somehow it's, it's easy to be merciful. But what's really required of us and what's really difficult is to, to show justice. Right. And I don't know. The fact that he does turn it back on himself does say something for him. Right. He really is living in its entirety his, his belief.
2: Yeah, he says I ought to treat myself as I would treat anybody else.
0: Soullessly,
2: <laughs> cruelly, yeah.
1: Except for he is consistent. Except for the fact that in Fontaine's case, he is only judging her based on half the evidence, right? That he he only saw that does seem to half be a of little, it, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and it comes, it does come down to intention though, doesn't it? He's judging only on the results of her actions, not mm. either by what instigated them or by what's going on in her, in her being, right? In her soul. And when Hugo says God is more than just, one of the things he's talking about is that God looks at the heart.
2: Well, yeah. One of the lines that we talked about a minute ago was there in the darkness, who can know the answer to all these questions? There's only one. He is alone. He is God. Right. Right. Which is why maybe Valjean looks at
1: Fantine and says, the truth is you are still virginal and holy before God. Hmm. Because the intention of your heart was always to take care of your child. Who can know
2: it. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. The intention of your heart, who can know it, including you, as you try to pick up this law and justify yourself. No one can justify themselves but God. Right. And God does. Lucky you. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Really powerful. I hope he, I'm sure he will in the coming hundreds of pages continue to meditate. on that.
0: <laughs> Oh yeah, certainly. Will. Well, thank you for both of your thoughts. I am eager to watch the story that I know so well play out in the next, in the next pages. We're about to get, I think Valjean claiming his daughter, which is going to be great fun. I wonder if, and this is just sort of a um, thoughts to take with us into our next reading assignment. I'm, Concerned about whether Cosette will be a real person as a character? Me too. Or whether she yes. will be a paper doll of sorts?
2: Well, right now she's a lark.
0: Right now she's a lark. So there's that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> what, larks?
1: <laughs> what
0: larks? What larks, Pip? Um, so that'll be interesting to find out. And I'm also really excited to watch Valjean encounter the Thenardiers and their, their particular brand of calloused evil. That's going to be fun and probably rather satisfying.
2: I will have Master of the House playing as I read (laughs) (laughs) that. So great to have
0: an A list musical to to keep us company through this reading. (laughs) Well, thank all of you listeners for joining us, and we hope you'll show up next time and also join us on Facebook and and talk to us about your own thoughts as you read through this great novel. And uh, until next time, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon
1: appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, Happy reading!